The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us hearing ears this morning and hearts that meekly receive your word implanted, and that we would be a people who submit ourselves more fully to your Son who is Lord, and that we would be a people who walk in step with your Spirit who guides us into all the blessings that we have in Christ. Lord, come and move among us and teach us and and help me bring your word to your people this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Fred. I'm part of the team here, and I serve uh, at our congregation down in Kitts. And it's my joy to be with you this morning to bring God's word to you from the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. How many of you have heard that read in church before? I didn't didn't think I'd see a lot of hands. Um, Well, uh, we're going to get there in a second, but this is our first week of Advent. And uh, the weeks leading up to Christmas, we call this is the season of Advent. And Advent means arriving. This is a time when we reflect upon this good news, this glorious good news that the Son of God became a man, the person of Jesus Christ, came into this world. He has arrived. 
And uh, so we are looking at his coming into the world to, to bring us redemption and save us from our sins, as Matthew one twenty one says. Um, but that's not all. Uh, because he has come, we also remember at Advent that he is also coming again. And so uh, we also shift our eyes, not just backwards to remember that he has come, but to forward, to long for his future coming, when his kingdom will come in its fullness and he will reign and all things will be new and we will see him face to face. That's what we long for. That's what we look to. Um, let's look at Matthew this morning. Um, this is one of those strange passages, isn't it? I, I think that uh, we, we sometimes come to a passage like this. I don't know. You, you read all of these very strange names, this sort of barrage of strange names, one after another after another. And what do we do? We skip to verse 18. And we skip over this long list of names and we go right into this wonderful narrative of Jesus' birth. Um, but let me encourage you, don't do that. We, we need these verses here. We, we need this in our Bibles. This is the, the, the opening of the New Testament right after that blank page between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is where we need to begin. This is good news for us because what this passage does for us, what this genealogy does for us is it locates the person of Jesus in the the grand scheme of redemptive history. It it shows us that, that he is part of an unfolding, progressing plan that God uh, began in the, in the very beginning and, and then through his people Israel. He's continuing on something that he's already begun. And Jesus belongs to that story. Now look at verse 1 with me. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I like to point out to people that you cannot read the very first verse of the New Testament without understanding something about the Old Testament. I would suggest quite a bit about the Old Testament. And so we're introduced here in this opening verse to Jesus Christ. Um, By the way, Christ is not his last name. That's the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, meaning the anointed one. And we learn here in verse 1, uh, Matthew tells us that, that he is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so to reiterate my point from a moment ago, um, we really cannot understand what the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, say about the person and, and the ministry of Jesus uh, without the Old Testament story. We, we need the Old Testament. And in this case, um, Matthew says that Jesus, the Christ, is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he is descended from this line, this, this line from David back to Abraham, You could go over to Luke's gospel and see it even goes back to Adam. But Jesus' humanity is descended from this this long list that has been read uh, for us here this morning. 
And he focuses particularly on David and Abraham, and that ought to pique our interest. That ought to, uh, we ought to raise an eyebrow. If we know anything about the Old Testament story, we know that God has, has made some amazing promises, and there's been some incredible prophecies given concerning these two people, David and Abraham. And so this ought to catch our attention. We see that the Messiah, Jesus, is connected with these important figures in the Old Testament. We'll look at some of those connections in a moment. But here's what I want to point out. Just It seems obvious, but it's, it's worth pointing out. Jesus didn't appear out of nowhere. He didn't sort of arrive on a spaceship, you know, he comes with a, a genealogy. He comes from families and, and he's rooted. He's rooted and grounded in the whole history of Israel. We cannot understand Jesus' story unless we understand the history of Israel. And all of that means we must not unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. You know, Dr. Proven is, is nodding affirmingly right now. We mustn't divorce the Old Testament from the New Testament. What we need is we need a whole Bible to produce whole Christians. Sometimes you hear people say, I'm a New Testament Christian. Well, let me tell you, the New Testament Christians were Old Testament Christians. The New Testament wasn't written yet. And if you go to to 2 Timothy, Paul says that the Old Testament, the sacred writings, are able to make you wise unto salvation in Christ Jesus. That's the Old Testament, because he was writing the New Testament as he wrote that. Well, Jesus is rooted in that story. Um, Now, for the ancient Jewish people, genealogies were very important. They they labored to make sure that they, they got the genealogies right. They preserved these genealogies, not only because it rooted them in history and their history, but it also helped them understand who they are or who they were. Genealogies helped to give um, the, the Jews their identity. See, to be a Jew was to know your ancestry, your relationship to a household and then a clan and then a tribe. That's who you, that's who you are. So, for example, in uh, Philippians 3, we see this when Paul says that he is of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. There's a whole history wrapped up in those words. Paul is locating himself, not just in the broader history of the people of Israel, but he says, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. We can't get into the details, but there's a lot there. It's important. That's how Paul thought about himself. Now, I think this is important for us because we live in a pretty rootless culture. Wouldn't you agree? Some have suggested that the the Western world has has lost its story. We certainly don't have much of a sense of history anymore. And I think we tend to identify ourselves, we get our identity by, by our achievements. Not so much by who we come from who our grandparents and our great-grandparents and our great-great-grandparents are. 
We, we don't see ourselves that way much anymore. We're, we're sort of living in a rootless time, in a rootless culture. And I think as a result, our identity feels sort of, sort of fragile, sort of vague. Now, perhaps, I, perhaps this feeling of rootlessness is actually given rise to some of the, the recent uptick in interest of people sort of tracing out their family trees. Have you seen this lately? If you, you know, you're online and that little ad comes up, go to Ancestry.com and you'll find out that you are related to some nobleman in Scotland and there's probably a castle with your name on it and you've got a coat of arms. Why is it never that you're, you're related to you know, a dirt farmer back in... You know, it's just not the case. We're all related to nobility, of course. Um, but that, there's a real interest. There's a real resurgence or a, 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 a newfound interest in this, this study of our genealogies and our, our family trees. And go to Ancestry.com. I'm not paid by them. Um, and I think there is this interest because we're restless. We're, we're rootless. Um, we live in a culture that has lost its story, its connection to history. Now, for the Jew, this, this wasn't a problem. They had these genealogies. But for, for a Jew who knows the Old Testament and who you are coming to and saying that Jesus is the Messiah, one of the key questions is, well, prove it to me. Show me. And this is the way that Matthew wants to show us. He is showing that Jesus is the Messiah by rooting him in the long history of Israel and Israel's people, the people of Israel, and particularly the promises that God has made to his people. We're going to focus on a couple of them in particular. So Jesus is part of this lineage of people to whom God has made these great promises. And this list is intimidating, but there's actually some symmetry to it. It's quite, there's some beautiful symmetry. Look at verse 17. Here's a summary. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation, Deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, this isn't a comprehensive list. It's a selective list, but it's selected for a purpose because Matthew is tracing out for us the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises, particularly to establish his kingdom and bless all the nations of the earth. Those are the promises that God is, is protecting and um, preserving here through this genealogy. So I want to look at this a little bit more closely with you by looking at, at uh, three key moments, we could say, in the history of Israel. We're going to look at them very briefly. We're going to look at the call of Abraham, one. Second, we're going to look at the promise that God made to David, two. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the problem of the exile that Matthew points out here. That'll be my third point. So let's jump in and look at the call of Abraham. Abraham, here in this genealogy, is mentioned three times. And so we, immediately we're back in the book of Genesis, right? Abraham, one of the key towering figures in the whole Old Testament, we go back to the book of Genesis and we see that God elects Abraham. He goes to Abraham. Abraham is a, a pagan living in Mesopotamia. And God goes to him and he, he, he sees him in a, in a city called Ur of the Chaldees. 
And God goes to Abraham and calls him away from Ur. Ur is just a, an archaeological site in southern Iraq now. But back then it was this thriving city and God came to him. And here's what God said to him in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, he changed his name later to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's that great promise that God is going to, through Abraham, bless all the families or all the nations of the world. What a promise. Now, later on, uh, God repeats this promise to Abraham. And then later on again, in Genesis 26, God repeats this promise to Abraham's son, Isaac. In verse 4, God says to Isaac, In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So you see, the blessing is being passed on from father to son and down the line. And that brings us to Jesus, but we'll get there in a moment. Now, it might be worth pointing out that this blessing, this calling, and this promise to bless Abraham and all the nations of the earth through him happened immediately following, uh, we could say, the fiasco of the Tower of Babel. If you remember back in Genesis 11, it's very important because it sets the scene. Um, All the people... Word, had come together, it was sort of this united nations, and they built this great tower, this monument to their awesomeness. And they said, we are going to make a name for ourselves, meaning alone, without any help from God. And they, they, they got to work, and God maybe wasn't so impressed with this building project. And so he came down, it says in Genesis 11, and he confused all their language. They had one language, and then they started to babble. That's where that comes from. And they, they babbled away, and they misunderstood each other. And then it says that God uh, scattered them over the whole face of the earth. So that's what he thought of their little project, and uh, it was no more. And so God's call of Abraham is a response to this problem of human sin and pride. The idea that we can do it apart from him. No, we can't. And so God comes to Abraham. And instead of saying, you make a name for yourself, God says, I am going to make your name great. I am going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. So the question is, how is this going to happen? How is God going to bless the nations through Abraham? Because if you keep reading in your Bibles, you'll get to the end of Genesis, and you'll realize that hasn't happened yet. And then you get, you read through Exodus, and then Leviticus, and then Numbers, and then Deuteronomy, and off into the historical books, and then into the, the prophetic books, and you realize this hasn't happened yet. There are there are little um, there are little foretastes of it here and there, little signs, little hints, but nothing like the the fulfillment of this amazing, glorious promise that God has given to Abraham. It just hasn't happened. You get to the end of Malachi, and and that's why there's a, another page because you realize the story's not over yet. That's why we need 
the genealogy. So how's this blessing going to come? Well, we'll get there in a moment, but I want to look now at the second key moment. We've looked at the, the call of Abraham. Now we want to look at the promise that God made to David. David is mentioned five times in this, and I'd love to focus more on David because he really plays a central role in this genealogy, but there's, there's too much there. But look at verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon. Now, David, David is the king, the king after God's own heart. The king, uh, after Saul blew it and, and was sort of uh, canceled, um, God raised up this, this, this young, godly, humble man, David. And as David went on, God came to him and he made one of the most extraordinary promises we have in the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 7 and verses 12 to 14, God comes to David and says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that's a euphemism for dead. Um, <laughs> sounds so much nicer, doesn't it? God says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And then we drop down to verse 16 and it says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So here's what God is promising David. He says, I am going to establish your house, your dynasty, forever. Your kingdom will know no end. It's going to endure forever and ever. Now, if we took the time to read this a bit more, we'd see that there's, there's a partial fulfillment of this promise in the person of David's son, Solomon, mentioned here in the genealogy. Solomon, great king, incredibly wise um, he, he establishes uh, a, a reign over the kingdom and it, and it grows and people hear of his wisdom and come from all over to, to see him and hear him. And um, there's great prosperity and uh, Solomon builds this great majestic temple in Jerusalem to, 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 to worship the Lord. But it's only a partial fulfillment. Because it doesn't take long to realize that, that Solomon isn't the guy. He, he sins. He is unfaithful. The kingdom of Israel ends up being divided into the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes. Uh, wicked kings rise up and oppress the people. Everything kind of goes to pot. And in this, in light of of, of the, the sort of the breakdown of the, of the kingdom. And the promise takes on a new quality. It takes on a, a prophetic quality. And so we see this in the prophets, but I love what some of the psalmists say. For example, in Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, we read this. The Lord said to me, the, the psalmist is speaking as the, the son of God. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Colossians picks up on this. Ask of me, 
And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So this is a great son who who God is going to give the nations and, and the ends of the earth to for him to possess and rule over. Who is this son? Later in Psalm 72, we read, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. And in verse 11, it says, May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. This is amazing. This is not like any other king. This is the king of kings. This is the king before whom all the kings of the earth fall down and pay homage and worship and adore. He's unique. He's above all other kings, all other lords, and all the nations shall serve him and worship him. Finally, in verse 17, we read this. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. So what we're beginning to hear is the, the, the promise of Abraham is beginning to converge with this kingdom promise that God made to David. So how's it all going to be fulfilled? It just goes from glory to glory, right? Not so much. That's our third moment in the history of Israel, the problem of the exile. Big problem. This is really the lowest point in, in the whole history of Israel. Terrible. If we had time, we'd go back and, and look in the book of Deuteronomy, how, how God made a covenant with, with his people, and he warned them before they went into the promised land, this glorious inheritance, land flowing with milk and honey. He warned them. He said, keep my covenant, be faithful, observe my statutes, or else. He warned them, or else I'll take you out of the land, and I'll, you'll be taken into a foreign land. And that would, it's terrible judgment. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened to Israel. Over time, uh, they they sinned. They were uh, idolatrous. And in in, in BC uh, 722, the Assyrians came down and and essentially uh, wiped out the northern tribes, all ten northern tribes, taken off into exile. We haven't seen or heard from them since. Scattered to the wind. And then a number of years later in 597 BC, the Babylonians came to the southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah, and took many of them, most of them away in a couple of deportations. That's what Matthew is talking about here. He, many of the people were deported off to Babylon, taken into exile. This is the, the lowest point, the most tragic moment in the history of Israel. So where's the hope? How are these promises to be fulfilled? Is everything lost? Does it come to a dead end? I mean, the tragedy of this is seen in Psalm 137, where we're very familiar with. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. They remembered the glory of the temple and, and, and the glory of the city of Jerusalem, the city of the king, David's city, They remembered the promises that God had made and all they can do in this foreign land is weep 
On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of your songs of Zion. They're taunting them. Come on, sing us a song. They can't do it. They're heartbroken. They've put their, their ukuleles away. Electric guitars. See, here's the problem. And I, I think this applies to us. This isn't all ancient history. Israel didn't take to heart the warning of God, did they? They didn't think that sin was a serious problem in the eyes of God. So they ignored the warnings. How tempted are we? I mean, imagine if you were to ask most people on the street, do you believe in a just God who judges sin? I think people would laugh in your face. Of course not. Don't be silly. Don't be silly, but this is a warning. Our own conscience bears. I, I had a, an issue with my wife this morning, and I could not preach until I had texted her and said, please forgive me. <laughs> I just can't do it. My own conscience just won't let me. I mean, there's a problem. The problem with the human heart is the It's big. It's serious. God... God stands against us in judgment. It's appointed for man to die once and after that to face the judgment. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are children of wrath because we're dead in our transgressions and sins. This is so serious. We mustn't be like the Israelites. Oh, it'll never happen to us. God is good. God is gracious. No problem. Let's go on. The message of the gospel is the hope that we have in the face of our sin. Because Jesus became sin for us. Jesus was punished in our place in order to reconcile us to a just God, a holy God, who doesn't sweep our sin under the cosmic carpet. The message of of the gospel is that we cannot hope to receive God's blessing because we deserve it. We don't. We deserve his judgment. But the good news is that God gives his blessing to those who don't deserve it. And that's grace. That's the message of grace in the gospel. So coming back to the Israelites and the, 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 the genealogy here, one person says, God doesn't fulfill his promises through Israel because of their righteousness. He fulfills his promises through them in spite of their sinfulness. That's the story of this genealogy. So we've looked briefly at the the call of Abraham, the promise that God made to David, and the, the problem of the exile. Verses 12 to 16 pick up on this this genealogy after the exile, the deportation, and there's nothing but a little remnant left of the nation. This little remnant returns. They, they come eventually back from Babylon. They come back to the land, and it's a shadow of its former glory. Israel never fully recovers, and the, the promises of God are still not realized. In fact, the, the land, the Israelites in the land remained under foreign occupation, first under Babylon and then later under um, Greece and then under Rome, even in the time of Jesus. The Romans are 
occupying. Now, there's, there's a lot here, but we have to see, I think, one thing that stands out. Israel, a patriarchal society, the genealogies uh, almost always follow through the father. And Matthew has given us a genealogy here that includes five women, and that, that ought to stand out to anybody who reads this. And so why, why include five women and why these particular... I mean, I could imagine uh, maybe Matthew wants to put in some of the great matriarchs, right? We could have Sarah, who's Abraham's wife, or we could have Rebecca, Isaac's wife. I mean, these are the great women of the faith, but they're not included here. Matthew's selection is, well, um, interesting. He includes Ruth, a Moabitess, not from the people of Israel, not, not a covenant member. She's from Moab, and that's a sordid history with Lot and that whole... We can't go there. um, Secondly, we've got Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute, included here in Jesus' genealogy. Then Tamar, I mean, that is one bizarre... You got to... I won't let my kids read that section. Tamar dresses up as a prostitute, deceives her father-in-law, Judah. I mean, this is one of the greatest people in the Bible, deceived in order to conceive with his daughter-in-law twins. X-rated. It is. Pretty scary stuff. Pretty messed up. And you got Bathsheba. She's not even named here. Look at what he says in verse 6. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Doesn't even name her. I mean, David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and the whole thing ended up in the murder of Uriah and the loss of their first son. Solomon was the second son. It's all messed up. There's a lot of skeletons in Jesus' closet. There's a lot of skeletons in our closet too, aren't there? I love what Alistair Begg says. He says, this is a triumph of grace. He says, if Jesus had such individuals as his forebearers, we shouldn't be surprised if he has such individuals as his followers. And such were some of us. We fit, don't we? There's no ideal people. Jesus doesn't work with squeaky clean, you know, dressed up Sunday go to meet and clothed people. He only deals with messy people, broken people, sinful people, selfish people. The only kinds of people he's ever been in the business of saving. Because that's all of us. Jesus, later on in Matthew's Gospel, is introduced to us as the friend of sinners. That ought to comfort our hearts this morning. Jesus is the friend of sin, And he's not the friend of sinners in a way that says, well, that's okay, I don't mind about your sin. He minds very much about our sin. He doesn't approve of our sin, but here's what he does. Matthew one twenty one says that he came to save us from our sin. Through Jesus Christ, the penalty of sin and the power of sin is forever broken over us. Through his life and his death and his resurrection and by the working of the Spirit. See, God is a God who seeks and saves sinners. Those are the only kinds of human beings there are, and you and I fit the picture. This is the message of the gospel. This is the message of Advent. Now let's try and bring it all together. We could jump ahead 
We could see how Matthew talks about Jesus as the great king. But I want to just direct our attention to the end of the book. And I don't think I have a slide for this. But we all know the Great Commission, right? And I think what we see there in in Matthew 28 are the the promises of Abraham and the, the promise that God made to David are converging together in the person of Jesus when he says, All authority. See, he's the king, he's the ruler, he reigns. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. There's the king reigning on his throne forever and ever, world without end. And therefore, he says, here's the implication of that. In light of my authority, he says, therefore, go and make disciples of every nation. Bring to them, he says, Through me, bring to them the blessing of Abraham. As we go forward and we tell our neighbors and our friends and our associates and our colleagues about Jesus, we're bringing to them the blessing of Abraham. And I would suggest to you, Abraham had no conception of how great this blessing is. He saw it from a distance. It was a mere shadow. Now, where are my notes here? Jesus goes on to say, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. I love that because to be baptized is to be immersed into the life of God. That's what your baptism represents. In Christ, we are brought up into and immersed fully into the life of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We participate in the life that he has known in himself and enjoyed in that love and that glory and that goodness and that blessedness from all of eternity. And that is ours in Christ. Paul puts it another way in Ephesians 1. He says, we are raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places and all the spiritual blessings are ours. This is the blessing of Abraham and it comes to us through faith in Jesus and we are compelled by the love of God to bring it to others. That's why we're sent and that's why we're sending That's why there's 630,000 people in the city who don't know this blessing. It's not for us alone. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. We got to go. We got to pray. We got to speak. Paul says, I believe, therefore I spoke. How can we believe and not open our mouths? Didn't mean for this to get all evangelistic on you, but... We celebrate this glorious good news. And I know you hear this each week, but rouse up your hearts this morning to hear it afresh. Your Savior, the Son of God, came into this world, gave up glory unimaginable beyond our wildest dreams, gave it all up, set it all aside, came into this world, died on a cross for our sin, rose again from the dead, triumphant over sin and death and Satan, and now he reigns over our lives. So everything works together for our good. And I don't say that casually. I know that I don't throw that out lightly. But here's the amazing thing I I just want to finish on. He's come, but he's coming again. We celebrate the first advent, but when we look, and we look to that glorious final fulfillment of all of the promises, when the kingdom will come in its total glory, 
And we will see him face to face. I love this passage in Revelation 21. Let it hit you as we close. Behold. This is the angels declaring. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is our future in Christ. We've been adopted into his family. This is our genealogy now because we're in him and this is his genealogy. We can own up to all of our our past. We don't have to cover it up and be ashamed because it's covered. And the blood of Christ has reconciled us fully to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you make us a humble people who glory in the richness and beauty and goodness of Jesus Christ crucified and risen and reigning and returning. This is our hope. This is not a notion. This is not an abstract idea. This has happened and will happen in history to this world, to us. And so, Lord, make us, make us a humble, happy, hopeful people, we pray, this Advent season in Jesus' name. Amen.